Hi, and welcome to GemCast. I'm Christina Shenby, and today we actually have two brand new voices on GemCast. They are Paul DeKoenig and Lauren Bailey. They'll be introducing themselves, but they are both at Dartmouth and are going to be talking about some practical ways that you can think about geriatric patients in the ED. Of course, this topic is what GemCast is all about, so I was very excited to welcome them to give a podcast together. Paul and Lauren, take it away. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of GemCast. I'm Paul DeConing. And I'm Lauren Bailey. And we're both at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center up here in uh, northern New Hampshire. And for the uh, purpose of full disclosure, we are recording this outside our ambulance bay. So we may actually hear sirens and backing up sounds and other sorts of ambient noise. So we apologize, but this is where we live. Uh, today we're going to talk about our fondness for geriatric EM and how these patients really have an effect become, I think, both of our favorite patient population. Take it away, Lauren. Exactly. As we have heard quite often in ASAP, different podcasts, geriatric EM is a really hot topic right now. Uh, we're going to discuss why this is such an important subspecialty to us. We're also going to talk about our shared interest in our elderly warriors a theorem by which to approach the elderly patients in the ED, an elderly paradigm, and also some really scary statistics for why geriatric patients warrant extra mindfulness. So let's let's introduce ourselves a little bit more. Um, as I said, I'm Paul DeConing. I'm the residency director here at Dartmouth in the emergency medicine program. And who are you, Lauren, and what are you going to do with your life? I'm one of the chief residents here, and in three days, I will be moving to Albuquerque to do an EMS fellowship. I thought about a geriatric EM fellowship, honestly, but EMS is my spot, and I hope to continue my care for the elderly in the EMS realm. So stay tuned. We'll be hearing from Lauren more in the future. So Lauren, tell us, how did this kind of aspect of our population, this patient population, really become your favorite? Well, I, I think it's a combination of how I was raised, but I've noticed throughout residency that I really, really look forward to seeing the elderly patients. When an 85-year-old person checks in with belly pain, I literally squeal with delight. Squeal with delight. Um, truly. And I think my co-residents think I'm a bit nutty, but I get quite excited about seeing these folks. You know, for one, they're often very stoic. They don't really complain much. They're very, very satisfied with any care that they receive. And if you treat them with an ounce of kindness, they're very, very appreciative. That's why they're the greatest generation, right? Exactly, exactly. And I think my love for that generation really goes back to probably one of the most amazing grandparents you could have ever imagined. I called him my big daddy. He was one cool cat. Big Daddy was born in Virginia, grew up in New Orleans, so he had a really interesting southern accent that was endearing and very odd all at once. He was a recruiter for the Buffalo Bills, but he also owned a used car lot where I spent a lot of my days growing up. That's got to get him some street cred. Exactly. Right? Maybe not with my mom because he taught me how to smoke cigarettes there. And when did she find out that you learned to smoke cigarettes? When I burned my eyebrows and eyelashes off at the age of five and a half. That was the end to that, but I spent a lot of time with Big Daddy going to coffee shops, donut shops, grocery stores, and I learned how to treat people with respect, with kindness, and I think it's just that appreciation for caring for elderly patients that he taught me. Let's get back to EM. Enough about that. Month one of my intern year, I had a really, really humbling case. 
where I saw an elderly gentleman, I think he was in his mid-70s, came in with flank pain, no history of kidney stones, but I absolutely knew that this had to be his kidney stone. I was pretty horrified when I got a non-con CT of his abdomen that showed his eight centimeter rupturing AAA. Um, it was a, a very humbling, scary moment that really shattered my core. So and that actually does happen. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And you know, it's month one of intern year. You think you're on top of the world. You just finished medical school and you're a wizard, but lo and behold, you are actually quite humbled. And it makes me think about this theorem that you taught us during our orientation month that I have continued to apply to my daily practice today that we're going to talk more about. It's a three-point theorem, and the first point really was ingrained upon me from one of my teachers, who's a good friend to this day, Kevin Bice, who's an EM physician at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which is where I trained. And I remember he, him telling us that old people break easy, and it really is true. And over time, I've kind of elaborated on that with my own experiences that the theorem has really become uh, three parts. Number one, old people break easy. Number two, they don't play by the rules. And number three, and I mean this in the nicest, kindest, politically correct way that I can, they're out to screw you. And we'll talk about why that is true, but it's really an endearing comment and not in any way meant to, dis to disparage really this greatest generation. It's a great theory. And we're going to talk about some statistics that actually support each point of this uh, theorem. So let's get to point number one, they break easy. When we consider belly pain, again, my favorite chief complaint in the elderly patient. Is that just because they all get a CAT scan or, or why is that? They all get the tube of truth. The tube of truth. So older patients with abdominal pain are more likely to have serious underlying pathology and they have higher rates of surgery, 20 to 30% and mortality, five to 10%. I love this comment by Christina Shinvey in her recent publication published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine this March. And a lot of this podcast really was based off this paper. It's a great summary of the statistics behind elderly medicine and why it is so scary. But she says, for younger patients with abdominal pain, clinicians should have a good reason to obtain advanced imaging. And for older patients, clinicians should have a good reason not to obtain advanced imaging. That really is true. I, I could not begin to tell you the number of times that that statement encapsulates real life patients that I've had. Exactly. If you're old, you get a scan. When we consider the elderly patients in trauma, being old increases your risk of death from trauma. Let's look at some specific stats. In a retrospective study by Purdue et al. in 1998, mortality in elderly patients was twice that in younger patients, despite equivalent injury severity. And that's not really that surprising, but it's scary. Elderly patients are more likely to suffer later death after trauma than younger patients. And this really is attributed to a combo of injury, pre-existing medical conditions, and the complications that they have after injury. Now, are you saying the later death, I mean, they have a delayed, delayed death from their initial injury? Exactly. Think about rib fractures. Rib fractures are a common morbid condition in older adults. What do you think the rate of developing a pneumonia with three to four rib fractures is, Paul? For all comers or elderly patients? For elderly patients. Well, since we're doing a podcast on geriatric EM, I'm going to think it's pretty high. I'll say 50%. So it's 30%. But with six plus rib fractures, you're in the 50% risk of developing pneumonia. 
So again, rib fractures, develop pneumonia later, it's bad news. You know, are you done with your workup in the elderly patient that falls if you have a negative chest x-ray? Me personally? And they have chest tenderness. No, and, and you could even make an argument that if they're stable, you don't even waste your time with a plain film, just go straight to CT because they're probably going to need cross-sectional imaging anyhow. But So I would say no, I'm not. Exactly. If someone has chest wall tenderness, any sort of hypoxia or splinting, you need to get a chest CT. Again, it's the answer tube. And then these people need to be admitted for analgesia, pulmonary therapy. Right. I mean, you just think about the mobility concerns of these patients. How many of them are simply from a fall are going to be at increased risk above their already existing baseline of fall risk? They would probably all benefit from PT, OT evals, ambulation studies to see, are they able to manage their ADLs at home? Do they live independently? You know, great point. hundred percent agree. I think the same can be said about hip fractures. Hip fractures occur almost exclusively in the elderly population after a ground level fall. Radiographs are a great starting point to identify these fractures. Surprisingly, CTs only are 58 to 80% sensitive in identifying occult fractures. MRI is the test of choice, near 100% sensitivity in identifying those fractures. But again, I think this highlights the importance of obtaining advanced imaging in the elderly patients. One of your earlier points about just plain old abdominal pain and, and not imaging younger patients, but you really got to have a reason to not image. I remember giving a talk years ago, I would give over and over again, and ran across a horrifying statistic about what the mortality rate of of missed diagnosis in abdominal pain in elderly patients. Like they die when we miss their diagnosis. So it really does matter. Exactly. They break easy. They break easy. Let's talk about point number two. Old people don't play by the rules. When we think about acute coronary syndrome, the statistics here are terrifying. We know that women often have atypical symptoms for ACS, but did you know that the elderly in general have very atypical symptoms, which includes the absence of chest pain? Yes. <laughs> From experience, yes. Tell me about the patient you had and his unique angel equivalent. Well, I actually I took care of the, the guy twice. and. One of my most interesting anginal equivalents was acute psychosis. I remember taking care of a guy who, at least twice, when he was psychotic, he was having an MI. Never had chest pain, never had shortness of breath, but that was his anginal equivalent. And why not, right? So you can have anything. And that really seared in my mind that the elderly can, they don't play by the rules and they can have any symptom and it can be an MI. Exactly. Some of the more common symptoms for the elderly, and this is age greater than 65, is dyspnea. That's about 50% of those presenting with MI. And I think that's probably the most common. Right. Diaphoresis, that's 26% of folks. And nausea vomiting, which is 24%. I think from an EMS standpoint, there's a lot of interesting pre-hospital literature that I've been real keen on lately. So patients with atypical symptoms are less likely to receive pre-hospital EKGs they have longer times from first medical contact to percutaneous coronary intervention, which obviously correlates with higher mortality rates. In a retrospective cohort study from Cannon et al. in 2014, the authors searched an EMS database in North Carolina. Ooh, North Carolina! That's right. And they found that 12% of STEMI patients presented without chest pain. 28% of STEMI patients without chest pain did not even receive a pre-hospital EKG. 
and this was associated with longer times to reperfusion. I mean, how many times have you had a conversation, and this is not to disparage our cardiology con uh, colleagues, but when you'll, you may run an EKG by them and they say it can't possibly be ACS because they're not having chest pain. Exactly, or they don't want to take the patient directly to the cath lab because they're not having chest pain. So I think that this is interesting and I think we need to be mindful of atypical presentations in our elderly patients. So conclusion for this point, ACS should be considered in elderly patients who present with dyspnea, diaphoresis, nausea, syncope, belly pain, or altered mental status. I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that the typical presentation of any condition is atypical in the elderly patient, and the atypical presentation is actually typical in the elderly patient for any condition. That's profound. That's good, Paul. Man, we should, we should, we should publish that. We should do a podcast. Yeah, we should do a something. podcast. So let's talk about our third and final point, and this is a bit cheeky, as we said, but it really is meant to confer a bit of caution and mindfulness when we approach the elderly patient. Now, the thing that kind of is amusing to me is whenever I quiz you all about the three-point theorem of geriatric EM, you always skip number one and number two, and you go straight to this one, which I suppose if you had to remember only one of them, that would be helpful. But I do find it fascinating that you jump straight to this one right away. It's cheeky. Old people are out to screw you. And why is that, Lauren? Because they lie. And we, what we mean is they don't truly lie, but for all of the things that we've said so far, they are the greatest generation. So they downplay everything. You know, when they tell you they've, they've got the blanket pulled up to their chin and they say, no, really, I'm fine, they're not. They're about to code. Again, from a pre-hospital standpoint, older patients are often under-triaged in a pre-hospital setting, maybe because they minimize their symptoms. But standard adult EMS guidelines are really not very sensitive when applied to older adults. So geriatric-specific triage criteria have been developed. They are in the works and trying to be implemented in pre-hospital settings. But these geriatric-specific criteria more accurately identify the need for trauma center care for injured older adults and should be implemented. When we talk about geriatric specific triage criteria, what we're talking about are employing wider parameters for physiologic markers that indicate distress or hypotension. So specifically, these parameters are associated with increased mortality in older trauma patients. So the new criteria are really to set points of heart rate greater than 90, systolic blood pressure less than 110, lactate greater than 2.5. And these markers at these values indicate fairly significant mortality. Whereas in you know a 30-year-old trauma patient, you might consider hypotension to be systolic less than 90. Right. So we're going to have wider set points for our parameters. My last shift, actually, I, a fairly healthy 75-year-old uh, woman who came in with about six weeks of neck and shoulder pain. She'd been to her massage therapist. It just sounds bad. Yeah, she had a lot of pain. It was in a cape-like distribution across her shoulders into her back and... I just had a spidey sense. I felt like something was wrong. I mean, Never ignore the spidey sense. Exactly. It was probably overkill to get an MRI of the C-spine because she didn't actually have any neuro deficits, 
But something was just wrong. She was in a tremendous amount of pain and she was crying. And lo and behold, she had a pathologic compression fracture in her C-spine, which prompted imaging of her entire spine. And she's riddled with lytic lesions. Mm. So, you know, I think when you approach these elderly patients, you trust the spidey sense, you over-image, and you over-test. You will not hurt them with imaging from a malignancy risk perspective. There's something you said there really rings true. I mean, how many times have you seen your grandparents cry? It's usually about something bad. Tears, vomiting, it's all portends badness. Exactly. It's important to apply the grandpa rule when you see these patients. So treat this patient as if he's your own big daddy or if he's your own Nana and do all the workup. It's okay to practice cost ineffective medicine with the elderly. That's okay. In the illustrious words of Norman Paradis, who essentially is our research grandmaster here, he is a longtime EM wizard. He has a pretty cool motto when practicing emergency medicine. He says that we are not playing to win, we are playing to not lose. It's kind of a, a conceptual head flip, but it really, really is true. Exactly. So in summary, this theorem is pretty rad. Let's talk. They don't play by the rules. They break easy. They are out to screw you. I think this is a good theorem to keep in my toolbox, and I'll use it forevermore. We've taught you something. <laughs> can I graduate now? Yeah, you can graduate <laughs> after this podcast. Well, let's shift gears and talk about an interesting thought. And this is what we'll call the geriatric paradigm. And I think in emergency medicine, we're mostly all familiar with the pediatric paradigm. It's that age-old question, are kids just little adults or are they their own entity? My general thinking about pediatrics is that kids are just little adults. And I understand the reasons that people would argue opposite that, but my point is that you should not have a fear for pediatric patients if you approach them the same way, which is to rule out life threats, resuscitate them, and get them to definitive care. That will serve you well. And the same is true for geriatric patients. But there's some differences too, just like there are for pediatric patients. Just like we talked about, they break easy. They're, they don't play by the rules and they're out to lead you astray. I like to think about pediatrics and geriatrics as separate patient populations. I do think that geriatric patients are really similar to pediatric patients. And something that we don't often think about is that the elderly folks are highly susceptible to abuse and neglect. We are all mandated reporters. We report child abuse regularly, but it's not as widely known or obvious when a geriatric patient is being abused or neglected. And so there's an interesting disparity, I think, between those groups, and it does require us to be mindful and aware of those special situations. So true. I think we're always on the lookout for non-accidental trauma, but I would agree that we don't think about it in our geriatric population quite as much because it doesn't look the same. So did you know that, talking about this pediatrics versus geriatrics, that there are currently 55 pediatric EM fellowship programs across the U.S. and only two geriatric EM fellowships? No, I actually didn't know those exact numbers, though it's not terribly surprising. 
I'm going to jump in here with a brief correction. There are actually more than two geriatric EM fellowships around the country, and I know this is fantastic news for all of you who are listening who decided right here and now that you want to do a geriatric EM fellowship. Now, Paul and Lauren are going to tell you that you don't have to in order to take good care of older patients, and that is 100% true. You can certainly take excellent care of your older patients without doing a year or two of fellowship. But if it's something that you're interested in terms of helping effect change in your hospital, your healthcare system, the United States healthcare system as a whole, or the world, then having some additional training in a fellowship can be helpful, but not necessary. There are, to my knowledge, I believe around six programs around the country now. We here at UNC were, I believe, the third program to open, and we've been in existence for about eight years, I think. Um, So there are a few programs. There are more than two, but certainly less than 10. If you're interested, the SAEM Fellowship website has more information on this, and certainly you can contact me at GEMCAST, and I can try to help put you in touch with the right people as well. It sounds like we need to make a move because what's happening to our patient population? We're all growing older. All the baby boomers are getting up there in age. And I think geriatric EM is going to be an increasing focus. Do you think that you need to do a fellowship in geriatric emergency medicine to effectively care for the elderly? I would argue no, because I don't think it takes a whole lot of practice change to tune your compass to care for these patients effectively because they're not new diagnoses. They're not conditions that you only see in the population. They just look different very often. Why do we care about geriatric EM at Dartmouth so much, Paul? To practice in this neck of the woods is really a privilege and an honor. We have, according to the, the census in 2017, the second and the third oldest patient populations in New Hampshire and Vermont. It's really right at our doorstep. These patients are here. They, I mean, how many days do you walk into the ED, look at the board, and the average age of a great number of the patients is over the age of 80, or you'll have you know, five or more nonagenarians in the ED that, depart- that day. For us, we are actually in the process of pursuing ASEP geriatric ED accreditation because we need it. Our patients need it. It's, these are our patients. We care for them every day of the week and twice on Sundays. So it's really an important thing here, but that's not unique to us. There are other states that are also aging, so it's important. And what exactly does this ASEP Geriatric Emergency Department accreditation mean for us? How will that change our practice? I think if it does nothing else but increase our awareness for the presentations of these types of patients and how we can care for them better, that's a win. But it involves kind of things that help us identify unique complaints or presentations of patients, um, having beds that are a little bit lower to the floor, special lighting, larger size clocks, things that make just the stay for these patients that much more pleasant, uh, helping them with things that may help avoid sundowning, for example, if they're in the ED over a period of time, and then also incorporating community resources that will help them after they're discharged. And if you are interested in pursuing geriatric ED accreditation, I actually did a podcast on this back in May 2017 with Chris Carpenter, and I have one in the works coming up for practical tips and pearls on how to get your geriatric ED accredited at your site and what that can mean for you. It's a sexy topic, and I think it's an important topic that we're all needing to focus on right now. 
Did you hear that? She said this is a sexy topic. So please step aside, resuscitation and emergent thoracotomies. Move to the other side of the room, esophageal ultrasound and all the crazy stuff that people are doing with that because clearly today is the day of geriatrics. Thank you. Currently, there's about 43 hospitals across the U.S. that are already geriatric ED accredited by the um, American College of Emergency Physicians, and 190, and probably more than that now, are in the process, and we're one of those. So um, I'm super excited about it. Our patients need it. it. It actually makes us better doctors. Totally agree. All right, Paul, we've covered a lot of points here today. Let's sum it up a little bit. We talked about your awesome possum theorem of geriatrics, which I think will serve everyone well cap it off for me again. Maybe I'll flip that back on you and let's talk about that one patient that we had a number of months ago that really boiled this all down into one nice little bundle. Remember the patient in 21? Oh yeah. I don't think I'll ever forget this poor woman. She was relatively healthy. Her husband brought her in because the day before they were watching the Patriots play football. The Patriots happened to be her favorite football team. He thought it was really odd that she kept asking, who is that? What team is playing? It was just bizarre that she couldn't remember the Patriots were playing. And she watches football. He was super alarmed by that. She continued to have some questionable memory issues throughout the night. And then we saw her in the middle of the afternoon the next day. Do you remember what her chief complaint was? No. It was shortness of breath. Shortness of breath. That's right. Shortness of Problem breath. number one. <laughs> right. But over the next six or so hours in the ED, we saw her decompensate completely. She required high-flow nasal cannula for her shortness of breath. We eventually had to... Without hypoxia, as I recall. Exactly. She became progressively more tachycardic. She was altered. She didn't even recognize her husband. She had to be intubated and admitted to the ICU where she had a lumbar puncture which revealed HSV encephalitis and she died the next day. Literally, shortness of breath, couldn't remember the Patriots were playing to dead within 24 hours. Horrifying. And that was with aggressive intervention in the ED. I remember you paid attention to the birdie on your shoulder and just kept saying something is wrong with her. You know, I think that this theorem that you have taught us will serve me well, but also you've fostered this ability to trust your gut, trust the birdie on your shoulder. If you have the heebie-jeebies or the creepy crawlies that something is wrong, there probably is something wrong. And do you absolutely have to find the exact thing? No, but you need to do a thorough workup. And if something is wrong and you haven't found an answer, take a step back, see if you think that this patient can go home and function at home, and if not, engage more support and resources, potentially admit to the hospital. So this is not meant to be the be all and end all of the final solution to geriatric patients, but hopefully this has keyed you into the importance of increased vigilance uh, for this patient population and really an adoration for them. They are my absolute favorite to take care of, hands down. A any day I will take care of them. And some of them I would just love to take home. So we challenge you with a final closing statement, go forth, and play to not lose. That's right. All right, well, thanks again, and take care. That's a wrap. I hope you all enjoyed hearing from Paul and Bailey as much as I did. I love their take-home points, and I will try to teach them, use them, and apply them on my next shift.